in the 11FS office? Well, no, we're not in the 11FS office. I'm actually in Singapore uh, for episode 91 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain and cryptography meet the changing worlds of finance, tech, and consumer products. Today we bring you Google gets into consumer hardware keys, Bitthump gets hacked, and will the real Galaxy Digital please stand up? All this and more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm Simon Taylor, and I haven't hosted in a week because the one and only Sarah Feenan stepped in as a guest host last week. Thank you very much to Sarah and Tim for their mini takeover. But I'm not alone today. I'm joined by Mr. Anthony Lewis. How are you, sir? Hi, welcome to Singapore, Simon. It's great to, it's great to hang out with you here instead of doing this uh, over the internet like we did a few episodes ago. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, live and in living colour from your office in Singapore. Um, your home office, in fact. Look what a lovely house you have. Um, just talk to me a little bit about the uh, blockchain scene in this part of the world. You're obviously, uh, you work at R3, but you see a lot of what's going on in the blockchain and the crypto scene out here. How would you describe it in, in sort of uh, a couple of sentences? Yeah, that's right. In, in, in some ways, we're ahead of um, many other countries. In Asia, people... Um, tend to like gambling, which helps when the majority of cryptocurrencies is used for gambling at the moment. Um, the regulators tend to be a little bit more forward-thinking here, um, and are very. Um, the regulators here come out with guidance a lot more than than in, in other countries. Cool stuff. Alrighty, um, let's get on with the news. Um, first story this week, I actually got from CNET, um, and this was about Google adding hardware security extensions for both Firefox and Edge browsers. So this is the ability to support hardware security keys. Um, a bit like, I guess, you would see a Trezor um, key and, and you would see uh, some of the other wallets out there. Um, but it's so that you no longer need to rely on their Chrome browser to log into websites like Gmail, YouTube, and G Suite. Um, but of course, those hardware security devices um, that connect wirelessly or with USB offer better login security than passwords more generally. Um, and when combined with a short-lived numeric code sent to your phone, uh, you can end up with something that's really quite uh, secure. But Google support, of course, was limited um, in the early days to a standard called U2F that came with a lot of confines. And Google's now updated its login to the newer, broader standard of FIDO2, which um, sounds like a sequel about a dog. But actually, um, the FIDO Alliance is, of course, um, you know, a set of standards from a number of organizations around how people will log in. Google are also saying that uh, FIDO2 opens the door for Google to move beyond passwords entirely since it enables authentication with a combination of security key and biometric data like faces or fingerprints. Uh, and this would be a massive victory to move away from passwords. And of course, one-time SMS passwords, which are causing a lot of trouble. Uh, there's a lot of conversation in banking right now about uh, how are we going to move to the next generation of 3D secure? What's strong customer authentication going to look like? There's a whole bunch of questions there. Um, and of course, FIDO stands for the Fast Identity Online Alliance, um, and it encompasses a whole bunch of options. Um, for me, though, uh, Anthony, you've seen, I guess, in the institutional world, we've had dedicated security hardware for quite some time. Um, could you see this increasingly coming into the consumer world? And, and what have you learned as you've looked at this space in the last few years about the role hardware security plays with, with the ability to move assets or just log into something secure? Sure. I think this is about moving away from shared secrets. So password is a secret that you share with the with the organization, and then you prove that you know this password, 
um, and then they let you into their website. And we're moving away from, and, and, and they suck for various reasons. So sometimes you forget your shared secret because you're told on every website there's a different combination of numbers and letters and uppercase and lowercase and, and what you can and can't put in your password. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes you forget. Um, they're insecure because they have to be stored. Now, generally they're stored uh, not in plain text, but they're stored uh, hashed. But um, you can you can download an entire dump of hashed passwords and start brute forcing um, brute forcing these and, and figuring out what people's passwords are. Um, and, and finally, you have this thing called a replay attack. Once I know your password, I can use your password um, again and again to log in if if uh, and pretend to be you. Um, so we're moving away from passwords and shared secrets towards uh, cryptographic challenges. So what that means is you hold a, as, as a consumer, you hold a private key, just like you do with uh, uh, in, crypt- in cryptocurrencies. Um, and when, when you want to log into a service, um, the, the service provider, the, the website will send you a challenge. It can be a random string of characters or a bunch of numbers or whatever. You then sign that with your private key and you send them the signature. Um, and if the sig- and then they can mathematically calculate that that signature um, is accurate and represents you, and then they can let you in. And now the benefits to that is you don't have to if, if you don't have to remember anything because you're storing it on a hardware device. Um, there are no replay attacks because every single challenge they send will be different, so every single signature you send back will be different. Um, and and the crypto, what's interesting to me, what's exciting to me is is that the crypto world has been doing this for a very long time. I remember Mount Gox before it collapsed in, in early 2014, Mt. Gox sent all of its customers uh, YubiKeys, which are these small little USB devices that you plug into your USB drive. Um, and then when you tap them, they come up with a, uh, a string of characters which are kind of time sensitive. And they, they, were, they were a second factor that allowed you to, um, uh, to, to log in like a one-time pin. Um, and so we've been trying this for ages and, and um, hardware wallets have evolved over time. We now have, um, uh, trezors and, and and ledger nanos and and uh, hardware devices like that, which all, all do the same thing. They keep your they keep your key um, offline um, and sign things that that they're presented. Um, so what's really exciting to me is the fact that um, Google's kind of pushing this concept mainstream. Um, so hopefully, um, you know, in in five to ten years time, everyone will be signing things with with hardware devices, and this brings kind of what we've had to do in crypto closer to what normal people do when they're logging into normal websites. And the consumer behavior is used to using fingerprints now for most consumer tech, whereas actually for a lot of things they're not. I mean, with the uh, recent Apple card, we see that Apple did away with the need for the CVV number on the back of the card, and they send you a one-time pin. But of course, that's then secured by uh, coming through the app itself and also a recent biometric, um, something you are, that, that factor of authentication. So it seems like consumers are ready for it but it's very google to have the open source standard and it's very apple to be pushing you know only pushing it when the product's coming um but to me this is the classic example of the sort of thing we talk about on this podcast which is you know when you see mainstream finance and mainstream tech being changed by stuff that you saw in the crypto industry as you say four five six years ago in some cases um so maybe we'll see a lot more of it yeah i hope so and 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 banks have tried this already remember every time you open when you open a bank account they send you a um, a little device where you push a button and, and you get a six-digit pin. Banks have tried this, but because they've all given you different devices and they've all worked to different standards, it hasn't really been successful. I have a, a different device for every single bank uh, account mm. and I lose them and things like that. And when I lose them, I can't access my money. It's, it's, it's a bit of a pain. So having some sort of open source standard which can be adopted across the industry uh, could be massively beneficial. I imagine so. All right, um, speaking of which being massively beneficial, of course, the crypto industry is not without its hacks. And this story comes from the block crypto.com. Uh, Bithome has been hacked 
for $19 million by insiders with funds already sent to other exchanges. So Bitthumb, the largest cryptocurrency exchange in South Korea, was hacked on last Friday, uh, and more than 3 million EOS, around about $12 million, and 20 million XRP, the standard, um, around $6 million, appears to have been stolen. In an official statement, they claim that the crypto stolen was owned by them. Bitthumb claimed that it was the result of an internal inspection. It is judged that the incident is an accident involving insiders. I mean, what does that mean? That's um, that's a very, very confusing sentence. And in March, Bithelm announced that they were going to plan uh, to cut some of its workforce. Um, they have about 310 members of staff, and they were going to cut that by 50%. So uh, there may be some disgruntled employees there. According to blockchain security company PeckShield, the stolen EOS was sent rapidly to a number of other exchanges, uh, and the largest amount was sent to EXMO, followed by Huabi and Changely. So Anthony, um, our pet producer has uh, chosen the first two stories because they talk about um, different things. Um, this one has an Asian market flavor to it, just especially for you. Um, what's happened here? What I love about this industry is is there's there's uh, there's action every single every single week. Uh, we have the conference Deconomy in Seoul coming up next week. It's it's in a few days time. And I remember Deconomy last year as the conference was going on. Um, one of the main sponsors, the CEO, was was getting uh, arrested uh, in the U.S. So they had to take down the um, the the booth uh, while the conference was happening. And then and then this year. Um, this is this is almost delightful if you can if you can if you can put a word uh, to to something as as uh, sad as a hack. Um, but this year we have some action going on as well. So I look forward to uh, the conference economy in in about a week's time, and I'm sure we'll hear more about this hack then. Um, so yeah, that sentence that you mentioned it's an, it's an accident involving insiders. So either it's an accident or it's a hack. Yes. Um, if it's an accident, I I doubt that. Um, someone would accidentally send funds very quickly to other exchanges yes. to sell them into, into dollars or, or uh, exchange them into other cryptocurrencies. So it, it may have been a, an accident by management um, that, that allowed someone um, to go and, to go and uh, take, take it. But with all, as with all these hacks, um, you're never quite sure whether it's an inside job, uh, an exit scam, or actually an outside hack. And let me define this. An, an inside job might be some disgruntled employees stealing some money to, to, to get rich. Uh, an exit scam is generally the founders um, who have done who have planned this all along and have decided um, to, to wind up shop and run away with the funds. Um, and an outside hack is um, the most embarrassing because it means your cybersecurity protocols are, um, are, are lacking. Um, so you'd never... You try as hard as you, you you would try as hard as you could you can to say it's not an outside hack. You'd rather blame it on insiders, perhaps. And, and you've seen uh, possibly the opposite in banking, where they they don't want it to be um, an outside hack, but they also they really, really, really don't want it to be uh, an inside job. And that and and whenever that does happen with a bank, it makes massive headlines. But internal fraud is has been a risk in the industry for many many years. Other things we can do to try and prevent internal fraud and, and what are the sorts of things that would seem like best practice to, to look at doing that? Yeah, different exchanges will have different policies and procedures internally. I used to work at a Bitcoin exchange called ItBit, which is now called Paxos, and, and we had um, some pretty stringent controls. Everything was kept in what's called cold storage. So, so you couldn't 
it, it was impossible to hit a button and get cryptocurrencies out automatically. You had to have members of staff come together, type passwords into offline computers to create the wallets to sign the transactions. Um, but but some people didn't like some customers didn't like that because they couldn't instantly get that money out. And um, it meant yes, less liquidity, so they couldn't trade as you know as the market moved, and yeah, it creates well, a number of problems. Yeah, I mean they could trade as the market moved, but they couldn't extract their, their they couldn't withdraw funds and put it on another exchange to complete an arbitrage okay. or, or something like that. Now, what I love about this is um, uh, compared to so cryptocurrency exchange hacks compared to bank hacks. Uh, a much more of a spectator sport because you can see on the blockchains yeah. where the money's going and, and, and people can start analyzing the flows of value from one exchange to another exchange and, and you, can, you can almost follow the criminal as they're getting away with it. <laughs> uh, whereas with banks, it's uh, um, because you don't have a blockchain, you don't have a public blockchain, it's, it's almost impossible to tell what's happened to the money. And, and I think there's a really interesting trust element for banks as brands there because they sort of end up in a position where they're constantly blanket assuring with corporate speak. There was a hack. We are investigating. It will be fine. And you're like, is it though? Do you know what's going on? Uh, it reminds me of one of my favorite um, stories about British Rail in the old days of British Rail when a train broke down. Um, and of course, over the tunnel, somebody came along and said, um, ladies and gentlemen, we're just taking a short and scheduled stop as we deal with some maintenance issues. And then, of course, they left the microphone on. And in the background, you hear somebody going, Gary, what are we going to do? <laughs> it's broken. And it's like, we sort of know that's happening behind the scenes. So, like, uh, why don't you demonstrate competence? Um, and, and I think some of the challenger banks in Europe have done really well at this, which is to say there's an incident we're investigating, and then they show you their working, and they show you their homework. And that engenders trust in a way that sort of big corporate speak doesn't. And I think there's something that uh, people who are drawn to crypto seem to have this, this thing about them where they love that transparency. They love that they don't have to trust some nameless, faceless corporation. They can see more of what's going on. And of course, they distrust the organizations that are heading more and more towards centralization and away from that ideology. Yeah, exactly. If you can't see what's going on, then you're likely it's likely to engender distrust. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure that many, many, I'm sure the vast majority of, um, of, of bank hacks don't get reported. They only get, they only get reported once if, if the story leaks and then they have to go into damage limitation mode. Whereas it's much harder if you're a crypto exchange to hide the fact that crypto, uh, crypto is leaked out of your hot or cold wallets because everyone can see the value moving around on the blockchains. I think that's a super interesting point. Listen, um, it's time to, to shill it one more time. It's time for the ad read, Anthony. Um, and of course, this is an ad read near and dear to your heart because this- Oh, can I do this? I'd love to do this. Go, go right ahead. Fantastic. This episode is brought to you by R3. Blockchain is not just for FinServe. Tons of industries can reap major benefits. Insurance, healthcare, pharma, automotive, security token offerings, you name it. Discover the potential for blockchain for your business with R3's Corda platform. R3's Corda platform offers privacy, interoperability, integration, and consensus. Plus, it includes the mission-critical features that every complex business needs, including the world's only blockchain application firewall. The Corda platform, blockchain for every business in every industry. Head over to r3.com or corda.net for more info. That was awesome. Was I a good shill? That, that, was, that, was, that was some hardcore shilling. I've got to ask the question, what is a blockchain application firewall? This keeps coming up. What is a blockchain application file? Oh, I know the answer to this. It's um, it's it's technically a reverse proxy. So it's it's some software that sits on the boundary between the wild west of the internet and and your data center, uh, where everything's meant to be secure. And it only allows very very specific um, traffic and types of traffic uh, to come in to interact with your with your corda node, which sits so your corda node sits inside the firewall. The internet uh, sits outside. 
And the, the blockchain application firewall sits in between and only allows specific information to go through. Okay, so it's like a customized reverse proxy for certain types of uh, data that would be relevant for this type of transaction. Exactly, and the idea is it keeps out all the bad stuff. Keeping out the bad stuff. All right, thank you for that shill, Anthony. I thought that was some good shilling right there. The, the last story this week um, comes from TechCrunch, and it's a look inside the crypto firm Galaxy Digital, who was founded by, quote, sidelined Wall Street legend Mike Novogratz. And in this story, uh, TechCrunch actually interviewed Sam Engelbart, uh, who is the co-founder of Galaxy Digital. Um, and Galaxy have been around for a couple of years. Mike Novogratz, as they say, has been you know, kind of one of those big names in crypto for quite some time. And they described themselves as being sort of the merchant bank uh, for crypto. And because merchant banking means you know, sort of investment banking um, is another way of putting it. They do uh, a whole bunch of things where they help bring tokens to market. They do a whole bunch of stuff where they help um, manage uh, different assets and asset classes. They can launch funds. They, they have a whole suite of capability. Um, but And there were some interesting quotes in there. But Galaxy Digital um, obviously sort of launched before and, and during the crypto boom. Uh, and we've, there's been a number of stories about them having, you know, had to take some write downs, uh, but sort of putting positive news back out into the market since the crypto bust. Yeah, so is, is it crypto winter? There's a hundred million dollar. You just talked about a hundred million dollar acquisition. Uh, we've we've got we've got more news coming out. Perhaps perhaps winter is turning into spring. See, I know. I just want to. Sorry for interrupting you, but I wonder if it's crypto winter for coin values, but like crypto spring for cryptography changing technology, consumer finance, business finance. So people building while while the prices are down, and and then and positioning to to take advantage when the prices, if if and when the prices come back up again. I mean, yeah. does that jive with what you're seeing at R3 and from your clients? Is the, is the more of a build focus now than a POC focus? Uh, we've we've always been building. We don't have a coin. There's no such thing as a quarter coin. Um, so we've we've not really cared too much about the price of uh, specific cryptocurrencies going up and down. Uh, we've always been in build phase, but yeah, we we have things in production right now on Corda. Um, Thailand's a great example where we've got um, a project a, a, a project in production with with over a thousand um, small to medium enterprises um, getting financing um, using Corda as the as the main database. So there's some interesting quotes in this article, which um, comes from from Sam, and uh, who was the co-founder of Galaxy. And he said, generally speaking, we're trying to stay somewhat close to their geography, um, but we see a great deal of potential in Asia. We're in the process of raising credit and special opportunities fund to make structured credit investments in the space. Uh, and on going public, he said, um, if uh, we'd wanted to just be a venture business, um, we, we wouldn't need to go public. But in this phase, uh, it, where institutional investors are going to want and need exposure to blockchain investments in crypto, while at the same time, it's going to be a while before they're comfortable buying these assets directly, I guess they wanted to be in a place where um, they could give investors exposure without directly buying those investments, which I think is an interesting perspective. Um, but you know, why is there so much interest in Asia from the likes of Galaxy Digital, do you think? Well, there's plenty of money here, um, and and people like to gamble, um, as as as, you, as you've seen in the in the wider fintech context. Um, a lot of the investment is coming from Asia, uh, from Japan, from other countries. Uh, Japan's a special one because um, uh, retail FX, retail foreign uh, foreign exchange trading, uh, buying and selling currencies uh, to make a profit, um, is hugely popular in Japan. Really, uh, compared to pretty much every other country, the the number of people who sit and trade FX as a hobby. Um, 
It's probably got the highest percentage of, uh, of, of population in Japan doing it compared to other countries. Well, of course, um, CFDs, um, contracts for difference, is all spread betting. You do see a bit of that in Europe and especially in the United Kingdom. And it tends to be aimed at sort of uh, the lower income markets where people who are the punters, the gamblers, are the people who receive that marketing. Um, and generally, it's considered uh, you know, borderline unethical um, in some cases, in the same way that you know, gambling, when done uh, without ethics, can, can be considered the same way. Um, so interesting that it plays in that market, but of course the Asian context is really, really crucial there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's different. I think in Japan it was because interest rates were so low for so long that people just wanted something else to try and make money with and, and FX was, was allowed. Um, so so it, it, just became, it just became a theme. Um, moving to Korea and Seoul, um, if you stopped anyone in the street and asked them about Bitcoin, they would be able to describe to you what, what Bitcoin is and, and um, many of them would hold it. So in, 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 in Korea, Bitcoin, uh, especially um, about a year and a half ago, was on everyone's minds. Um, so in Asia, it, it really is different compared to, say, the US or, or Europe, I think. So Mike Novogratz uh, used, to, used to run a, a, a hedge fund called Fortress. Um, and Fortress is one of the earliest investors in, in cryptocurrency. So people, every single year I've been in this industry, and I've been in this industry over five years now, every single year is the year of institutional money coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2013, Fortress was buying up Bitcoins on Mt. Gox. So this is e- even before Mt. Gox, Gox went bankrupt. So money has been coming in through various institutional channels. Um, it's been drip feeding in for the entire time. And, and, and perhaps uh, Galaxy Digital is, you know, is, is another attempt at uh, institutionalizing access to cryptocurrencies. It's interesting that um, that drumbeat of institutional money is coming, institutional money is coming, is, is that good news story that these sorts of organizations need to put. Um, but it depends how you define institutional money. There's lots of money that touches institutions, um, but I wouldn't say it's the same as you know, the tier one institutions. That's a different thing. You can get a regulated organization somewhere to do just about anything. Um, and really, it's the retail, it's the pension funds. Uh, that's, where, that's where the money is. If they, if they get into, if they are able to access cryptocurrencies, on behalf of the um, on behalf of the the people whose whose pensions they're managing, and um, then you might see see the pump that everyone's looking for. Yeah. So of the investments market, about forty five percent of it is pensions, about twenty percent of it is direct retail, uh, and then about another twenty percent is corporate and charities, with a long tail of sort of other types of institutions doing um, prop trading and, and, and whatever else. So the the overwhelming majority of the market touches retail in some way, shape, or form. And, and that's interesting that uh, that retail access is, is such a key point and so much of it's managed on behalf of a retail customer. Um, but it's, yeah, it, it's key that that gets there. But that's why you see so much regulation because it is managed on behalf of the retail customer. It is critical to their retirement. So n- no surprise then, there's a whole bunch of regulations around it. Yeah, absolutely. Alrighty, um, some stories we did not have time to cover. Uh, Coindesk.com, uh, $5 million in MakerDAO loans have been liquidated, but help is on the way. Um, keeping an eye on MakerDAO, the stories um, just keep coming. It seems like the, their interest rates are ever increasing. They're up above 4.5%. Their governance calls are getting more and more interesting every week. Uh, the block people, pro- aren't, people still aren't voting. Yeah, The level of voting is very, very, very low indeed. It is. It's... Um, it's good that it's all happening out in the public, but it does appear to be sort of finding it increasingly difficult to keep its dollar peg um, as time goes on. Indeed. Maybe as people get bored of Brexit, they'll start voting or make it down instead. <laughs> well, you're gonna, maybe you can vote somewhere that where your vote's going to matter. Who knows? 
Um, TheBlockCrypto.com, JP Morgan recruiting for more blockchain positions than any other financial firm. That's um, that, I think that says a lot to me. I mean, that's a sign of the times, isn't it? They're, they're being quite contrarian. Um, yeah, during the, the bubble, it was, um, we don't like Bitcoin, we don't like Bitcoin, was the thing coming from Jamie Dimon. And now, uh, during the, the sort of crypto asset winter, here they are launching JPM coin. Um, it's, it's definitely the second wave. And Coindesk.com, uh, Bact have tapped a former IBM and Cisco exec to chair their board because a board uh, nomination seems to be news these days. Um, Alrighty, uh, it's time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. This week, it's not a straight show from Anthony Lewis. It's a tweet from the one and only Ryan Selkis of Masari. Uh, and his tweet reads... There is a $30 trillion great wealth transfer expected in the next 20 plus years. Millennials inheriting money from their parents. If 1% of that goes into cryptocurrencies, crypto would be a multi-trillion dollar asset class. That is a conservative case for a 50k Bitcoin. $50,000 Bitcoin. What do we think on this one? I don't like these. That's not how you do maths with with assets. You don't you don't take the amount of money going into Bitcoin and saying, well, that, um, you know, so if 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 a hundred dollars goes into Bitcoin, that means the market cap of Bitcoin goes up by a hundred. So you divide by the number of Bitcoins outstanding, and there's your target price of Bitcoin. That's just not how it works. I wrote a blog post on this on 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 my blog, uh, bitsonblocks.net, a while back. That's just not how markets work. You can the you you can uh, the the price of an asset can move irrespective of inflows and outflows. If everyone suddenly thinks that the price of something should be double, uh, without much money going in or out. Um, the price of the asset can double because people because that's just just how it works, um, and 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 likewise people can put money. Remember, every single dollar going into Bitcoin is a dollar coming out of Bitcoin as well. Uh, because if I'm buying a Bitcoin from you, uh, Simon, um, I'm giving you dollars. You're giving me bitcoins, and then you run off with the dollars. So my dollar in is your dollar out. Mm-hmm. Um, so so this isn't how maths works, guys. <laughs> I- well, there you go. Um, already, um, that's not all for this week, people. We uh, we have an interview for you. The one and only Colin G. Platt, possibly somewhere near his field, caught up with Mans Harmon, who is co-founder and the CEO of Hedera Hashgraph. Let's hear from that now. I'm joined here with Mance Harmon, co-founder and CEO of Hedera Hashgraph. Thanks very much for coming on today, Mance. Oh, thank you for having me. So we were just kind of catching up before the show. You you guys have been doing some really cool things over there. Um, you're based out in Texas, which is an interesting place to be doing blockchain. But uh, very happy to see that we have people representative all over the world. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, Texas, you know, Austin has a lot uh, going on in the field of blockchain. And uh, Dallas has a growing blockchain community. The company is headquartered here in Dallas, but we have major offices in New York and Seattle, and then sort of satellite offices in a number of locations across Asia and in uh, London as well. Awesome. Well, it, it, being a, a former resident of London and, a, and an originally from Seattle area, I'm very happy to hear that. <laughs> Can you tell our listeners a bit more about who Hedera uh, Hashgraph are and what you guys do? Sure. So Hedera Hashgraph is a public network that is built on the Hashgraph algorithm. And and the Hashgraph algorithm is an alternative to blockchain. It's not blockchain. It solves the same category of problems that blockchain solves, but it does so in a much more uh, efficient and secure way. So Hashgraph is sort of the next generation 
in terms of distributed ledger technology. And Hedera is using that to create a global public network using that algorithm. Okay. And and can we just try to dive into that a little bit without getting too much into the technical weeds? So uh, blockchains, I guess we could just grossly categorize the way they work as transactions are grouped together into blocks. And those blocks refer to previous batches of transactions or previous blocks. Um, what does a hash graph look like compared to that? Sure. Well, in blockchain, as you mentioned, it, everything is sort of serial or linear. Uh, all of the the nodes in the network take blocks of transactions and put them on top of their local copy of the chain of blocks or the blockchain. And that serves as a, a limiting factor in terms of performance. In Hashgraph, there's no chain. It's a graph. And, and so while blockchain sort of as a term refers both to the data structure, this chain of blocks, as well as a, a consensus algorithm where the community can come to agreement on what blocks go on top. Hashgraph is similar in that it's a, it, as a term, it refers to the data structure, which is a graph. Technically, it's a DAG, a directed acyclic graph, as well as a consensus algorithm that lets the community come to an agreement on the order of transactions within the graph. But because it's a graph... Um, all of the nodes in the network can be submitting transactions in parallel at the same time and everything works in parallel rather than serial. And so it has, you know, fantastic performance compared to all the blockchain related technologies. So if I understand it, the thing with a blockchain is everybody kind of comes together and does the same thing and agrees on the same thing or set of things at the same time. What you're saying is there's lots of different things happening around the world or inside the network, um, and people just need to rely, or I guess nodes just need to rely on other nodes. And once you have enough nodes that agree that something's happened in parallel, the same thing's happening elsewhere in the network, we could have lots of different things that are agreed upon, provided that each one of those has enough people attesting that it's correct. Is that yeah, exactly. And Hashgraph, it, you know, as transactions flow into the different nodes, those transactions get sent or gossiped is the term, to all of the other nodes in the network. And you can sort of just conceptually visualize that these transactions, as nodes receive them, they sort of pile up on top of each other. And when the pile gets deep enough, there is enough information there for a node to calculate the order of the transactions. And all the nodes, when they do that calculation, they come up with the same answer. And so they are in agreement on the order of transactions. And, and they all are doing this in parallel, and it's just very fast compared to everything else in the market. Okay, that, that sounds cool. So um, aside from being faster, what can, what can you kind of tell us about why people would, would use this um, and maybe kind of who are your initial targets of who should be using this? Well, so we looked at the market. When, when thinking about creating a public network, we observed sort of four fundamental obstacles to mainstream adoption of public DLT. I mean, it's interesting from my perspective that after years of having public distributed ledger technology in the market today, uh, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and others, there's still no enterprise applications running on any of these platforms. And so you have to ask yourself, well, why? I mean, what are the fundamental obstacles to preventing the mainstream adoption. And we came up with, with four, and you could throw a fifth one in there. 
uh, for good measure. And, and the first two are just tech related. There's performance and security. And the, you know, the first generation technologies can only process like five or 15 transactions per second. And it can take an hour for uh, people using the technology to know the order of transactions aren't going to change. That's just not, not acceptable for most applications. In our case, when we launch the beta version of this in the summer, we're expecting uh, more than 10,000 transactions per second. And when fully optimized later this year, we're expecting to be over 100,000 transactions per second. And you know the order of transactions within a few seconds. That is a game changer. It's the difference between a calculator and a computer. So that's a big one. And then security, we achieved the, the limit, the theoretical limit of what can be achieved in terms of security. And if you're building enterprise grade applications or mission critical applications, that's important. You, you want to know that uh, the, the building block that's being used for this, for this, this global infrastructure is, is the best it can be in terms of security. And that just limits the range of attacks that can be levied against the network. So those are really the two technical uh, obstacles. And we've addressed both of them just in the Hashgraph algorithm itself. In addition to that, we identified a, a couple of more um, stability. What's interesting is that everyone knows that these public networks are very likely, if not certain, to what we call hard fork or split into competing networks and competing cryptocurrencies. And we see this happening all the time. It's happened multiple times with Bitcoin. It's happened multiple times with Ethereum. Because the entire market is open source, everyone just sort of accepts this is going to happen. But when it happens, it creates chaos. And so again, if you're an enterprise organization wanting to build an application on top of one of these, if that happens with your application, your application gets forked. And now you're application is running on two different networks and the software that you've put into the market, the client software running on smartphones or computers, when it connects to the networks, it sort of randomly connects to one or the other, the old or the new. And in the application gets split, it creates chaos in the market. It's totally unacceptable for any real uh, application. So you have to solve that problem and we've done that. The, the way that we address that is that the Hashgraph algorithm, unlike everything else in the market, is proprietary. It's not open source. It's patented. Uh, and um, the way in which we're using that patent is, is to bring stability to this public ledger. The source code is going to be open for review uh, in the community. The world at large will be able to read every line of code with version 1.0. We'll publish that just like any open source project would. And there's no license required to use the platform. You just use it just like you would for Ethereum or any of the others. But because it's proprietary, we can make a commitment to the market that this platform will never fork. It will be stable in a very fundamental way that other, you know, all the open source projects aren't. That's, that's number three. And then finally, number four, if you can solve those problems, then what enterprise customers or mainstream customers are going to worry about is who's behind it. Who's the governing organization 
that is making decisions on product roadmap and and fees, et cetera, et cetera. And in our case, what we've done is by design, we are creating a global council of blue chip organizations, the largest companies in the world, cross sector, cross 18 sectors of the market, globally distributed, and then finally term limited. These This collection of 39 members of what we call the Hedera Governing Council uh, are the collectively the governing body of this enterprise grade public network. They they are geo distributed, as I've already mentioned, and cross sector and term limited, so that we have a an on on an ongoing basis, we have a good representation of what the entire market requires of a public network. And the companies end up acting as stewards uh, in their role of, of governing this this platform. They are actually owners of the Hedera uh, LLC. So it's a corporation. Again, unlike most everything else in the market, this is a corporation. And they actually are formal members of an LLC. And to give you some sense of the kind of uh, control that they have. It's not just a marketing agreement. There is a board of managers that is made up of representatives of the 39, and they are the ones that decide who is the CEO of the company. So they have the power to fire me if they were cho- you know, choose to do so. They We've literally given away control to the 39, and they are governing uh, the network. So so those were the four main obstacles. The fifth, I just throw in because it's it's relevant is regulatory compliance. And we recognize that for anything to go mainstream, the regulators are going to have to be happy with it. We built in uh, technology to the platform that makes it possible for the regulators to do their job, to regulate on a jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis. And so those were the five obstacles and and we've directly addressed all of those. Okay. You, you brought up a, a couple of times an interesting point that I kind of want to delve into and just, just understand uh, how you look at it. When you when you talk about a public network, generally, um, when people refer to a public network, to me, there's a coin and anyone can take part in the confirmation process or um, anybody theoretically could take sure. part of, of that, um, be it mining or, or staking or whatever it is. How does that work in, in Hashgraph? Yeah. So in our case... We have to bootstrap um, the network. We have to bootstrap the value of a coin. Here's the fundamental problem. If you have a proof of stake system, meaning there's one token, one vote on the order of transactions, uh, it's the case that you can't just have 10 or 50 of your buddies, for example, that are the nodes, because if the value of the token begins to go high, there's no one in the market that would trust 50 individuals not to steal the steal the money, right? And so in our case, we have chosen these global blue chip organizations that care far more about their brands than they do uh, about colluding with one another to try and steal money from, from this network. Uh, and, and we're starting with that group. This uh, initial network will be a network of 39 nodes then as the value of the token increases and is widely distributed, you know, it sort of becomes ubiquitous around the globe, 
it becomes practically impossible for a bad actor to buy up or control a third or more of the token supply. And, it, and then that's what's required. If, if anyone can control a third or more of the token supply, then they can do bad things to the network. So we make it impossible for that to happen over uh, a long period of time so that the value of the token can get, you know, can grow high and become broadly distributed, making it practically impossible for that to happen. So that's a requirement to growing uh, into an open network. So we start permissioned with the 39, but then as the value of the token increases, we can uh, go into what we call a sharded solution. We create a lot of, of sort of other networks that are peers of the main network. And there's an inter-network protocol that makes it possible to maintain the state of the system across all of these networks. When we go into this sharded phase, which would be a couple of years, 18 months to two years from now, when we move into that sharded phase, anybody that wants to run a node in the network will be able to do so. And so um, you know, the average, the average 16 year old kid that wants to stand up a computer in their basement and, and participate in the network and get compensated for that participation will be able to do so. But, uh, in, in our case, you have to bootstrap the system and, and the way that we're bootstrapping that is starting permission moving into public. Okay. That makes sense. Um, you brought up the, an interesting point there about um, regulation. What, what type of regulatory requirements have you identified as being kind of uh, keys to delivering your solution? Well, specifically, what, when I, what I'm referring to is the ability for the regulators to decide when uh, KYC information, you know, know your customer, customer information is required for transaction. So, for example, if I... Uh, if I have crypto, and in our case, the, the name of the cryptocurrency is HBAR. So if I have some HBAR and I want to go deposit that into a bank account, meaning I want to convert it to fiat into U.S. dollars and deposit that into my bank account, and I want to do it directly with the bank as opposed to going and first converting from fiat to dollars, or I just want to send transact, I just want to send HBAR. Let's just make it even simpler. I just want to send HBAR to my bank because my bank is now going to hold that H bar for me. They're going to be a custodian. It may be the case that the regulators require banks that are accepting these transactions to require KYC information for the transaction, where for others that are receiving transactions, maybe they aren't held to the same standard. What we do is make it possible for um, the, the you know a given government or jurisdiction to give a create a whitelist of KYC providers, those organizations that can can prove the identity and then create a claim, a formal what we call a claim, which is just a document or a hash of a document that contains this information about me, the KYC information, and attach that claim to my account. So that in the future, whenever I'm doing a transaction with anybody that the government says must require proof of identity, they can, they can demand that claim and I can provide it. Um, but you know, what the U S regulators might require maybe is very different than what regulators in, in Switzerland or Russia or China. And so we make it possible with these mechanisms for the regulators on a jurisdiction by jurisdiction 
to specify when this kind of information is required and who the authorities are that are uh, given responsibility for creating these claims. Super interesting. I think that's something that uh, is, is worth a lot more time that unfortunately we won't be able to get into today. Um, but what, one thing I'd really like to kind of understand and, and uh, get more from you on is, um, so you, you mentioned there's 39 uh, blue chip companies, so I guess largest companies in the world, um, the equivalent of the S&P 500 type companies, the FTSE 100. Um, are, are the names of those public? Um, and can you tell us a bit more about why they've signed on to work with you? Sure. Yeah. So we well. So we're in the process of creating this council. We've announced the first five, although we have more than that that have actually signed up. But but the first five that we've announced, we did so about three three to four weeks ago in Seoul, Korea, at our first council meeting. And, and the first five are Nomura, which is a global financial services organization, big bank based out of Tokyo. Deutsche Telekom, of course, one of the largest telcos in maybe I think it's the largest telco in Europe. Swisscom, another significant major telco in Europe. DLA Piper, which is one of the top global law firms in, in, in the world. And Magazine Luisa. Magazine Luisa maybe is a brand that most of the world hasn't heard of, but in South America, um, Latin America generally, they are the largest online retailer, sort of like the Amazon of South America, if you want to think of it that way. And, and so these are the first five. They're sort of representative uh, of the caliber of council member that we're describing. Um, we will be making ongoing announcements through the remainder of this year uh, as we continue to add and, and flesh out the, the, the full ranks of the, the first 39. And then after that, the, the 39 themselves, there's a membership committee. They will be the ones that make the decisions, to, recommendations to the council on, on who to add on an ongoing basis. And so, again, this isn't a body, a governing body that is term limited. And so they turn over. A third of them turns over every, every year. Uh, they actually govern, meaning that, for example, DLA Piper will have members sitting on the legal and regulatory committee that provides oversight of that part of the business. And there's a tech steering committee and, you know, that, that sort of thing. Excellent. Well, it sounds like, it sounds like you guys have put a lot of hard work and thinking into it and we look forward to hearing more and hope you'll come back and join us uh, as, as you announce these and as you progress in the project. Great. Thank you very much for your interest. And where can people find out more about Hedera? Hedera.com. Uh, there, there's a wealth of information there. Of course, we also have a YouTube channel uh, and, and, you know, white papers and, and tools and, and APIs for developers that want to be building product on the test networks and, and, you know, Hedera.com is, is a place to go. Awesome. Thank you very much. And you have a great day. Thank you so much. Alrighty, thank you very much to Mans from Hedera and of course Colin G. Platt, who's, I believe, got to be somewhere in Deconomy with your fine self, Anthony. Indeed. Uh, looking forward to that. And uh, if you see either of them at Deconomy, go say hi. It's one of those rare sites calling away from his field. Um, just to remind you, of course, this podcast is made by 11FS and we're a challenger consultancy working to shape the future and the next generation of financial services. We create fully digital propositions. We work with banks, 
big techs, and all kinds of companies who want to get the most out of where finance meets customers. And we look for all kinds of inspiration to do that, uh, like crypto, for instance. Uh, if you want to hear more Blockchain Insider every single Thursday, the subscribe button's right there. And if you're already subscribed, please, please throw us a review. We understand um, you might not want to give us the five stars because Colin's not on the show, but he was in there in the interview, you know, so that, that says it all. Uh, Anthony, where can people find out more about you? On the Twitter, I am at Anthony underscore BTC. That's Anthony without an H. Um, I have a book, The Basics of Bitcoins and Blockchains, which is available on Amazon and other good bookshops. Um, I have a blog as well, bitsonblocks.net. Um, and anything to do with R3 or Corda, which is the best blockchain for business, you can email me, anthony.lewis at r3.com. I'm loving the shameless shilling. I respect it. I know it's <laughs> and I respect it. All right, I've got to thank the amazing production team at 11FS, producer Petri, and of course, Alex, the editor. Thank you very much for listening. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. But for now, goodbye.